a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Ulliker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, also in Brussels. Today we're talking about Russia's influence in Africa. Russia has been running a largely clandestine campaign for influence in Africa for more than a decade now, benefiting both from ties forged during the Soviet era, as well as the declining popularity of Western countries in some parts of the continent. European states, in particular France, are struggling to maintain their footholds in parts of West and Central Africa. For example, France has recently ended its long-running anti-insurgency in the Sahel, entitled Operation Barkhan, amid growing anti-French sentiment. Russia has capitalised on the disillusionment with France and other Western partners, using social and traditional media to stoke discontent and has steadily increased its influence on the continent. Moscow has become the preferred partner for the provision of security services in countries such as Mali and the Central African Republic through private military companies like Wagner, which operate with little oversight or accountability. À la guerre asymétrique. Nous proposons une solution asymétrique. C'est ce qui s'appelle Wagner. Bienvenue à Wagner à Bamako pour libérer le Mali. The success of these influencing operations has become evident in Africa's perceptions of Russia's war in Ukraine. For many Africans, this conflict is just another war between neighbors, and the word invasion is rarely used in TV debates or press articles. All of this has raised concerns that Africa is increasingly becoming a battleground for competing interests between Russia and the West, a trend that could disrupt efforts to effectively address the many conflicts and crises in countries on the continent. To talk about this, we are excited to welcome Pauline Bax. Pauline is Crisis Group's Deputy Program Director for Africa. She has worked extensively on Russian influence and engagement in Africa, particularly in the Central African Republic. Before joining Crisis Group, Pauline had been working for over a decade for news outlets in Western and Sub-Saharan Africa, including NRC and Bloomberg. She's joining us from Johannesburg in South Africa. Pauline, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Pauline, Elissa noted that in Africa, there's not a ton of um, support for the Western position on Ukraine. But, you know, that's also the case in Latin America. It's the case in parts of Asia. Uh, Do you think that Russian influence in Africa is, um, is really increasing? And is that really what's driving public opinion and public perceptions of things like the war in Ukraine? Well, I think these are two two questions in one. Um, yeah, sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the first the first question is really that I mean the war in Ukraine um, was as everywhere a very big issue in Africa when it started, but it is now pretty much faded from the headlines. Sorry, and when it started, you mean the full scale invasion in February of twenty twenty two, not twenty fourteen? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So 
you know, as as everywhere, uh, it was it was big news. Nobody talked about anything else. Um, and by now, um, it has faded from few to the extent that it is not something people talk about every day. Um, it's also something I think that African leaders have um, accepted. There was a lot of frustration in the beginning that in Africa people felt they had to take sides. Of course, I'm speaking about African governments. They were more or less forced to choose sides with the West or against Russia for the West, either or. Um, that debate is still ongoing and has caused a lot of frustration. But I think much bigger concerns are now the impact of the Ukraine war on African economies. So that is really the much bigger issue of the day. Inflation, higher food prices, higher fuel prices, how to deal with that and how to mitigate um, these declining economies. The other question, if we can go back to that, um, is Russia expanding its influence in Africa? Well, it has expanded its influence in Africa for sure, uh, starting a couple of years ago. But now that the war is ongoing, we haven't seen that much change in the last year in Russia's expansion in Africa. So it has influence in certain countries. It does not have any influence in a majority of African countries. I could say not yet. We don't know. And when we say influence, what do we mean? Do we mean that it affects public opinion? Do we mean that it affects government policy? What does influence mean? Well, again, it depends on which country you talk about. So if we start with Central African Republic, which is the uh, Russian laboratory in Africa, has already been much talked about. Uh, the influence is very big. Russia and its operatives influence government policy. They influence the economy. Uh, they influence the situation on the battleground. And we also see a quite large Russian influence in Mali at the moment, because Mali in West Africa has chosen Russia to be its preferred military partner to fight jihadist insurgencies. Um, the jihadist insurgencies are, of course, Mali's main concern, and um, there is a military leadership in place. So the whole military component of Russia's um, support is massively important. Um, I'm speaking to you from South Africa. Um, South Africa has always had... Um, Good ties, good relations with, with Russia, dating from the apartheid era. South Africa has also weighed in uh, on the Ukraine war at the level of the United Nations some months ago. It tried to have a voice in the debates by offering to mediate. This was seen as a um, firmly pro-Russian stance. In South Africa, actually, in February next year, there will be a joint um, Russian-Chinese-South African military exercise which has grabbed some headlines in the press where um, people in South Africa are wondering why South Africa at this moment will do a joint military exercise with Russia. But overall, Russia doesn't play a huge role here. The government is friendly to Russia, but it's also friendly to the US and it's friendly to other European nations. And I think that is a position that many African countries have and have to have to take to try to have different partners at the same time. And if we go back to Mali, um, this was also the stance of the Malian government, actually, when at some point it said um, Mali wants to diversify its military partners, and we have decided to invite in um, Russia. So in the perspective of Mali, this was a choice of diversification, multiple partners at the same time. Um, the response of the West was to say, we can't accept that, you have to choose. Um, overall, just going back to your question, overall in Africa, I think um, 
there's resistance to the idea any country or any government would have to choose sides in this debate. I mean, what what does Russia hope to gain from its engagement with Africa? I mean, it's had previously had very strong ties with the continent. We saw what well, the, the Soviet Union did. We saw those ties wither in the post-Cold War era. And as you say, in the last few years, Russia has, has stepped up stepped up its engagement. So what, what is it hoping to gain uh, from being in Africa, of being more present in Africa? Well, this is a, I think this is something that many people are still trying to figure out. What exactly is it doing and why is it doing these things? If we look at the last two years, we don't see any building of lasting institutional relationships. The support for from Russia for Central African Republic is for an elected government. Um, the elected government there has asked Russia to come and help it support militarily. Um, that might be a lasting relationship depending on how long this president will stay. Um, in the case of Mali, there is an unelected government, a military leadership, which came, rose to power after the second coup in one year. This leadership may stay quite some time, but it is fairly unlikely because at some point elections will have to be held. Um, Russia seems to uh, work on the basis of extending its patronage network, so it's a lot of clientelism to an extent, and um, trading political and military influence or support for, among other things, commercial relationships. So some financial gain in the case of West Africa, again, if we go back to that, there's not just commercial relationships, probably the political relationships are more important. And also, uh, excuse, excuse my language, but to some extent to stick up a middle finger to France, who has been very important in West Africa for a long time and say, well, you know, this is, this could be our territory. It's not just yours. That's sort of the narrative that Russia is trying to promote and that has found very fertile grounds in West Africa. So is this a competition for influence as such? Is it Russia moving into vacuums? And following on that, um, how do you expect Western countries to respond? I mean, we've heard some tough talk. We will fight this. But what does that even mean in the context where what Russia is doing is sending Wagner in to support governments? How, how do you counter this if you want to and if it's born in part of an African desire to get rid of the Westerners? You know, I don't think it's really, Russia's not really moving into a vacuum. It did it a little bit maybe in Central African Republic, which didn't have much um, external support anymore, at least militarily. In the case of other countries where it is present or where it is trying to expand its influence, I would say that it is really moving into support authoritarian or unstable regimes, uh, countries rather. I mean, there might be countries where Russia could move in uh, much more aggressively or much more uh, with much more diplomatic weight. Um, for example, Zimbabwe, which has been sanctioned by the West, uh, which is clearly very pro-Russia, um, where Russia already has uh, mining operations, but we don't see a huge Russian presence there for reasons that I don't know. Um, maybe Zimbabwe is not of interest to Western countries, and hence it's not of that much interest to Russia. This is hard to say. So how do you expect Western countries to respond, given that uh, a, a lot of the reasons for the Russian involvement is pull from uh, on the part of the African countries that are seeking Russian engagement? What is it Western states can offer or do if they want to counter a rising Russian influence, rising Russian involvement? 
Um, yeah, again, I think we may have to look at uh, this at a case-by-case basis, right? So I think if we look at Central African Republic, there's no reason for the West to be so upset that Russia is present there. I mean, I understand from the perspective of the um, Western embassies that are there and the United Nations that has a large peacekeeping mission there, that it's very difficult to work with Wagner operatives, right? But in terms of political influence, um, Central African Republic doesn't have that much uh, political support from other partners, is very poor, very unstable, and that relationships, I mean, from a military and also from a political point of view, it does make sense. Mali is a completely different case. Um, I think it's very tricky, especially because the West has given so much support and invested so much uh, money and resources into a stabilization mission, um, trying to fend off the jihadists and bring a semblance of stability to Mali, which hasn't worked. Um, and now the military leaderships have sort of turned around and said, you know, look, we don't need you anymore, you made the situation much worse, and we're bringing in Russia. What can the West do to maintain its position in Mali? There's really not that much the West can do. Um, again, now we're talking sort of, of military and political support, but there's also, which we haven't mentioned yet, the fact that um, Wagner operatives especially uh, have misinformation campaigns and disinformation campaigns in parts of Africa. So the West would need to decide, you know, what is this going to tackle? And I think the misinformation campaigns actually could be a bigger concern than actually walking troops on the ground. So there seems to be a lot of concern um, around Russia's manipulation of the media in Africa. Uh, I'd be interested to hear from you how concerning you think that is, how extensive it maybe is, and how does Russia actually influence the information environment in the continent? What tactics does it employ? Well, Alyssa, we really have to go by what we know. And to be honest, there's so much we don't know. Africa is so big. The information and disinformation campaigns are fairly sophisticated. Trolling factories maybe in Russia or in Turkey, money for local NGOs who would then propagate the Russian message or the Russian discourse, and also support for local newspapers, support for local radio stations, and hiring, in some cases, there's some evidence of that, hiring uh, youth um, who have a computer and a Twitter account or something like that, and we'll get some money just to spread um, narratives that Russia likes, right? Um, it's like a freelance job. And I think it's very smart. You know, you employ people to bring your message out across the world or out, out into a country. And if you have enough of those people, this can be, this can influence the national debates. And in the end, it could or could not be destabilizing. Um, you know, how... How effective is this? I mean, and, and what kind of support is there in countries like Central Africa Republic and Mali, um, where Russia has got a foothold? How much public support is there for Russia's in- involvement and engagement in those countries? Oh, in Central African Republic and the capital, Bangui, at least, there's a lot of support for Russia. I think that's indisputable. 
unfortunately, at the same time, the people who are, do not agree with Russia being there or with what Russia does in Central African Republic don't really have a voice anymore in this debate. They're scared. Unfortunately, the same is happening in Mali, where dissenting voices are more or less suppressed, and there's a lot of self-censorship of those who want to criticize the military leadership but feel uncomfortable in doing so. Again, that's kind of skews our, our um, you know, our perspective. Like, what do we see? It's really hard to trust what we see at the moment. Again, in Central African Republic, Russia, for example, or Wagner, I should say, has or is sponsoring or financing somehow an entire radio station. This is great. It's very clever. Um, this radio station is being listened to. It's broadcast in local languages. Um, it's a new voice in the, uh, well, not, it's not a new voice. I think the radio station may have existed for some time before, uh, Wagner, uh, financed it, but it's a different voice in the debate. And there's a need for that in Africa as well. Um, I think if we look clearly at newspapers and radio stations and televisions, I think there's, an, there's a strong desire for different voices. And if we go back to, for example, when Al Jazeera first came to um, Africa, people were very happy. It's like, hey, a new voice you know, from the Middle East. This is something else than the traditional broadcasters that we have relied on for decades, like RFI from France, the BBC. We're tired of those old traditional voices who just bring us their propaganda from the West. And this is still often how it's seen in Africa. You know, BBC is all, you know, it's the English propaganda channel. And then you bring in a Russian RT, for example. Well, great, here's the Russian propaganda channel. People know these things. They are not stupid. And they would like to hear many voices and then make up their own minds in the end. So I'm not saying I definitely support, you know, Russia today coming to every single country uh, in Africa. Um, again, why would we object to that? Because we also know that Western... NGOs and Western governments often sponsor um, media outlets in Africa, right? And they sort of do the same thing. I think the problem with the Russian propaganda or the Russian disinformation is that it's um, often invisible, it's underground, it uses methods that are, um, it uses in there a very aggressive anti-Western narrative. It doesn't even try to be objective. And it's really um, very slanted, repetitive, and often Mm, yeah, I think aggressive is really the word. It's aggressive and it's trying to be destabilizing deliberately. I mean, what about the argument that it's simply not true, right? I mean, okay, the BBC is funded by the UK government less and less with every passing moment, but it's funded by the UK government. Uh, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty are funded by the US, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, as you say, they... They, most of the journalists who work for these outlets think they are being objective journalists. Um, and you can argue about the slant of the stories, but they do follow the rules. RT doesn't, right? I mean, every once in a while, they'll do an actual investigative story, but they also amplify a lot of things that are blatantly false. And is that recognized uh, by audiences in the countries uh, where you know, where they're most uh, they're most present on the African continent. Yeah, again, we're talking about a huge continent, right? Especially Central African Republic doesn't really have an objective traditional media. Most radio stations are have bias. They are often financed by somebody with money. Most of the newspapers are either against the rebels or pro the rebels or against the government. Or I mean, they're often not objective. Of course, there are very good journalists 
who do you know outstanding jobs trying to cover, for example, the conflict or the government in their country. But you often see this bias already in newspapers. And in Francophone West African countries, a lot of local newspapers already also have that bias. It's kind of baked in the whole thing. So my sense is that people are not really surprised if another secondary you know, or Russian-sponsored newspaper or radio comes in and also promotes something with bias. But of course, as you say, the problem is when uh, like deliberate misinformation, so disinformation is being spread. And of course, that is a huge issue. So I think we have to make the distinction between the traditional media and then there's the social media. So that this information is mostly on the social media. And if we see Russian influence in traditional media, there's still some lies, some propaganda, but I think it still tries to portray itself as objective. And I think the real problem is with social media, where it's so much easier to spread disinformation, outright lies, um, and especially if this discourse is entirely anti-French or anti-Western, um, anti-neocolonialist. Uh, it has really inflamed debates in West Africa, especially. And I think that's a huge problem. And we can't really see the extent of this problem. We can't really see where all this disinformation comes from and how it is being received. We don't know. We can see how it's received on Twitter. We don't know how it is being received by the people in a rural, you know, in a village in Mali who hear from their friends or from their uncle in the big city what was on Twitter recently. You know, are they able to distinguish between true and false? We don't know. So I'd like to pivot the conversation a little bit um, and maybe touch on um, the effectiveness, um, particularly of Wagner in Central African Republic and Mali. In Mali in particular, you know, the French operation Balkan has left. Um, the UN mission Minusma is, um, if we're going to be charitable, is, is crumbling, um, and is, isn't really fit for purpose. Um, how, how has Wagner offended in these countries as well? I mean, is it doing a better job than Balkan? Can it do a better job than Balkan? Um, has the, um, government's bet on Russia been a good bet? No, that's a really good question. Uh, I think the jury is still out on that one. Wagner created a lot of consternation when it first arrived in December last year in Bamako. And as you say, the, the French uh, accelerated the departure of Balkan. Uh, Minusma now is in great distress, falling apart. Wagner apparently came in with about 1,000 to 1,200 men, which is not a huge amount. By all accounts, that amount, that number of people uh, who work for Wagner hasn't really changed. Of course, very hard to get the numbers because most of them, or many of them, are in the remote north, which is hard to access and very dangerous. They do, they are visible in um, in the capital Bamako, where they are seen on convoys and they fight alongside the Malian military. A Malian army convoy comes by. There will be Malian soldiers. There will be Wagner soldiers together with them in the truck, sometimes wearing the same uniforms, using the same weapons. So they have really joined the Malian army. And I think this is what army mil- the Malian military leadership wanted. So in that sense, it might be a success. Again, have we seen any improvement in the security situation? Absolutely not. It's deteriorating. Have we seen great successes on the battlefield? 
not that I know of. And again, it's quite hard to do something in a country as big as Mali uh, with only a thousand men who also come from a different country, right? Uh, who may not know the terrain as well as the Malians do. So again, I think I think we should be careful to say, you know, it's a failure because we don't know. We, it's not necessarily a failure. I think um, the Malian military leadership is probably quite happy that Russia is there, that they get help in the way they want. They get to call the shots. They're not under the authority of the French anymore. At least this is how they used to see it. But now they are in charge. They got these men in. The problem with Wagner Mali is, of course, the big massacre uh, in March, where like 300 people were killed in the village of Mura. Eyewitness accounts and Human Rights Watch have documented that many people were summarily executed, and these people were civilians rather than fighters. Wagner is implicated in that massacre. Mali's, Mali's military leadership says that all these people were jihadists, but honestly, by all accounts, that was not the case. Yeah, so the, the involvement of Wagner in countries like Mali, we see more human rights abuses. And this fits into the strategy of both the Central African Republic uh, government and army and both the, the Malian one where they are, um, they don't think that UN peacekeeping missions are effective and they would rather go out and kill the bad guys the way that they see fit. And Wagner is a very useful tool for that. Um, I think we've probably got time for, for one more question. So Pauline, I was wondering, you know, how does the um this rivalry between Russia and the West, especially France, impact on the the possibility of resolving the the conflicts and the crises uh in the countries that where Russia's uh engagement is the biggest? Yeah, I think uh, I was going to say in an ideal world, you would see the UN peacekeeping mission in Mali stay and then France would have stayed and Russia would have stayed and they would all have worked together in a you know, wonderful uh, collaboration to help fight the jihadists. But unfortunately, that is obviously never going to work and is also impossible, especially in light of the human rights abuses that are attributed to Wagner. Um, and I think the West is you know, rightly washed its hands of that kind of um, military strategy, if I can even call it a strategy. So we see the rivalry in Central African Republic where uh, Western nations, Western donors basically are withdrawing their money. Um, so the government may have military support from Russia, but its budget is bleeding. There's not much left to pay civil servants or to put in healthcare or education. And that is a huge problem. And I think we can see the arguments of the West in saying we're not going to spend money on a government um, when the money might end up in the hands of Wagner, right? So they can't do that. And we see sort of the contours of the same issue developing now in Mali, where aid has been suspended, training, military training has been suspended by the EU. And we are not really sure where Mali... Um, well, we know that Mali still has money. It is not as dependent as Central African Republic on donors. Still, it's a part of its budget. From what we hear, not that much money right now is actually going to health and education and um, humanitarian issues at the moment. And this might become an even bigger problem further down the line. And I am not sure to what extent European nations or the U.S., have suspended all their budgetary aid to Mali. So I would have to check that, but there have been some withdrawals. And, and yeah, so this is how it affects, you know, it's countries have less money. 
And if they have less money, they're less able to address the root causes of many of these conflicts, which are often not religious, but are to do with poor governance, lack of services, lack of economic opportunities, lack of education, lack of healthcare. And if the government doesn't have have a budget, then it's not going to be able to address these issues. Exactly. So it will be a purely military strategy. It will be fighting to try to solve the problem. You know, but there are other countries where its support for the government does not affect this. I mean, you don't see any signs of rivalry between the West and Russia. I mean, people can still work together. And this is the case in many other countries, right? Again, there's a little bit of a difference between Wagner and Russia. We're not talking about Wagner and Mali and Central African Republic. But of course, there are many Russians, Russian embassies in, in Africa where it's business as usual, where commercial relationships continue, where we will have Russian-owned mines in one country and where we have Canadian-owned mines. But these are more developed economies or bigger economies, um, bigger populations and countries that are not as unstable as the two countries we have been talking about. So sadly, I think on that note, we are going to have to end this. Uh, Pauline, this has been really a terrific and very elucidating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. To read more about Crisis Group's work on Russia and Africa, check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can follow Pauline on Twitter. She's at Pauline Bax one You can also follow us and Crisis Group uh, on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. I'm at Olya Olaker. I'm also at Olya Olaker at Mastodon Online if you have uh, joined the Great Migration. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Fogerski, and our coordinator, Heiko Schwalb. But our biggest thanks, as always, goes out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. Uh, We're looking forward to chatting with you again soon. Uh, But in the meantime, have a lovely two weeks. Goodbye and see you next time.